We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. Welcome to the darkened hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Today's episode will concentrate on Operation Encore, the FBI's investigation of Saudi Arabia and the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. On January 23, 2020, Tim Golden and Sebastian Rotella, reporters for ProPublica, wrote an article entitled Operation Encore and the Saudi Connection, a secret history of the 9-11 investigation, where behind the scenes, a small team of FBI agents spent years trying to solve a mystery whether officials from Saudi Arabia, one of Washington's closest allies, were involved in the worst terror attack in U.S. history. Five days after the reporting of that story, CBS News would conduct a report based on that story. For the first time ever, we're getting an inside look at the FBI's investigation into possible ties between Saudi Arabia and 9-11. A new report from ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine dives into the investigation. The article goes behind the scenes with many of the agents involved in the secret case. They spent years trying to figure out if one of America's closest allies was involved in the worst terror attack in U.S. history. It is the first time anyone has written about Operation Encore, the FBI's campaign focusing on Saudi Arabia and 9-11. You will recall 15 of the 19 hijackers were from the kingdom. But Saudi Arabia has continued to deny any involvement in the attacks. ProPublica senior reporter Sebastian Rotella co-wrote that article, and he is joining us now from Washington. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So, Sebastian, in your article, you write Washington is still trying to keep possible Saudi connections to 9-11 a secret. And you spoke with former FBI agents about this. What did you learn? My colleague Tim Golden and I spent months working on this and, as you said, talking to agents involved in the investigation, uh, officials who knew about it, some of the witnesses who had turned up. And what we learned was, as you said, although the U.S. government, the 9-11 Commission and, and U.S. government agencies had officially publicly cleared Saudi Arabia of uh, connections of involvement in the 9-11 case, uh, this small team of FBI investigators, mainly in California and New York, 
pursued it uh, for years, pursued information that was already out there, questions that were already out there about several Saudi officials in California in particular who were suspected of having aided two of the al-Qaeda hijackers who, who were in California when they first arrived in the United States. And this team, uh, working quietly and with minimal resources, found a series of—they went of witnesses, new witnesses. They went back to old evidence, evidence that hadn't been focused on before, and turned up uh, new evidence, circumstantial evidence largely, but that all only added to the questions that were already out there about whether some of these uh, low-level Saudi officials, a, a diplomat, a cleric in, in Los Angeles, another individual who was believed to be a spy in San Diego, had been part of a support network that had aided these two hijackers uh, in, in the months leading up to the attacks. So you focus a lot of the article on this FBI agent, Daniel Gonzalez, and he's sort of like tireless in his effort to um, investigate whether or not there was a high-level Saudi connection to 9-11, even though his bosses are telling him to, to let it go, right, telling him and his team to let it go. What were some of the biggest takeaways from your interviews with him? And I know he sort of, every time there was a document that was released, he would dive into it, um, and he became aware that there was one narrative that was being floated that wasn't exactly a lie, but it wasn't 100 percent the truth either. That's correct. I mean, Dan, Danny Gonzalez was based in San Diego, and those two hijackers, Khalid al-Midhar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, had been based there. And he had the reaction that, you know, this crime had been committed partly on his beat, and that from the beginning, when he had been working on this case, he had discovered a number, number of individuals, including uh, people connected to the Saudi government, who appeared to have—who had clearly had contact with the hijackers, uh, or, or believed to, and, and, and whom he suspected of, of, of uh, knowing involvement of supporting them. Um, so he pursued that, again, joining forces with, with agents in New York in particular, who also, for understandable reasons, had were really focused and obsessed with this. And not just in 2002, 2003, but really starting in 2007, they really bared down. Uh, and as you said, with some opposition from higher levels, at other times they had support, but it was certainly a, a narrative that people were uncomfortable with. Mm -hmm. Some of the senior officials we talked to felt, said, look, there was smoke, but there wasn't fire. These guys found interesting stuff, but it, but it just wasn't there for to prosecute anyone or to pursue it further. Others felt that if they had been allowed to pursue it uh, more aggressively with more resources, perhaps they could have uh, reached conclusions. But the fact is, uh, there, there were clearly questions uh, that suggest that some of these Saudi officials who were being looked at had not told the complete truth contacts with the hijackers, uh, particularly a, a mystery uh, of the first two weeks when the hijackers arrive in the United States in Los Angeles in the year 2000. Uh, despite the intense work of the, F the, the total forces of the FBI, there was a continuing mystery about those two weeks. Where had those two hij hijackers been? Uh, why did they all of a sudden turn up in contact with a Saudi uh, figure and move to San Diego? And these agents found new witnesses who, who gave them evidence that suggested that this Saudi imam diplomat in Los Angeles had helped uh, or directed people to house them in that period. So they were, they were coming up with specifics, uh, but being told, look, this is all very interesting, but, you know, in 2012, this is not something we're going to pursue as a prosecution. You just don't have enough. So that begs the question, and I think a lot of people uh, watching this and reading your reporting are going to wonder. We've seen this time and time again, most recently with the Jamal Khashoggi case. Uh, the United States' relationship with the kingdom is troubling for a lot of Americans. So the question becomes, why is the Bureau so secretive about their investigation? Is there any concern on their part? Uh, are they worried about 
the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, even as the Trump administration relies on the kingdom uh, for a variety of things. The president of the United States is very close to uh, to the members of the royal family, and we are using them, obviously, for keeping uh, to keep up a maximum pressure campaign on Iran. But but why is the FBI so secretive about this? Well, it depends who you talk to. I think the, the serious senior FBI officials who, who have talked to us have told us, look, uh, there just isn't that much there in this case. Uh, the, the secrecy is the more difficult issue. Why, why is something, if, this, if there really isn't that much there, why, as you say, why should it not be, uh, given the dimensions of this, of this crime, why should it not be all out there for people to decide for themselves? Look, I think our investigation shows that all through the three presidential administrations since 9-11, this has been an ongoing issue. Everything having to do with Saudi Arabia is always treated with great delicacy and deference for many reasons. Among them, some of the ones you cited, uh, the Saudi Arabia's wealth, its oil, its uh, geopolitical strategic influence, its and, and of course, most importantly, I think uh, what people at the bureau and, and, and the CIA have, have always told us is that their, their need for Saudi Arabia as a counterterrorism partner. So, for whatever reason, through these three administrations, uh, questions that could be problematic or embarrassing for the kingdom have been handled with with with, de with delicacy and, and restraint. And secrecy, and that continues today. So, meantime, there's a group of 9/11 families that have continued to fight for justice uh, in the court system. Uh, continued to ask the various administrations to release documents. And funnily enough, you know, it was President Trump. You, you write in the article that said, "Yeah, yeah, sure, we, we can re release some of these documents that, n that the previous administrations had said no to, only to sort of have uh, their request kind of shut down by the Justice Department." But where? Um, where are their efforts going now? What's going on with their desire to sue the Saudi government? Well, there's this massive lawsuit being pursued in New York by the 9-11 families. And uh, it's reached a point where they're approaching the deposition phase. Interestingly enough, a lot of the information that was uh, developed by Operation Encore, whether or not you think it's significant evidence, but the, what was developed is kind of at the heart of this lawsuit. And, and that's what the, this big battle in court is, is going on about. The, the judge will have to rule soon about uh, the, the, the government's uh, resistance to uh, making public some of these documents. And, and that will really drive and shape this. this did Saudi officials aid those two hijackers in California? Uh, and in the coming months, uh, there will be some rulings uh, that will determine whether the Trump administration has to disclose more documents. And, that in, and there will also be rulings about uh, the, the, the scope and the number of people who will be deposed in Saudi Arabia and whether perhaps some of this information that these agents pursued for so many years until uh, the case is still technically open, but until uh, uh, 2016, it was really aggressive and active, whether that will finally come out in the setting of this civil suit against Saudi Arabia. You, you know, Sebastian, Emery pointed out the 9-11 families, uh, and one can only imagine the pain and suffering that they've uh, had to live with uh, over the course of these many years. And when you read in your reporting uh, that uh, potential leads went sort of cold, uh, you, you, you point specifically to an individual named Omar al-Bayoumi. He's a well-connected Saudi student, and there is perhaps some evidence that he may have been aware of the plot prior to 9-11? 
Well, he's someone who, whose role was known publicly in the sense that there's no question that he meets with the—after that two-week mystery period I told you about when the, the hijackers first arrive in Los Angeles, he, he meets with them at a, at a restaurant in Los Angeles. He says it is an accidental meeting. A lot of people believe that's not true because the, there's great suspicion that he was a Saudi intelligence operative. And they move three days later to San Diego, where he's from, and he helps set them up in an apartment in his apartment apartment complex and helps them open a bank account and uh, and and gets people in the immigrant community to assist them as translators and, and and things like that so there's great suspicion about him yes he's one of the key figures and there's a sense that he could that could have been uh, investigated more aggressively early on the encore team did pursue a lot of information about him they did not come up with a smoking gun I have to make that clear but they feel that the evidence they found only heightens uh, the questions about him about the fact of why why was this Saudi intelligence official uh, have in contact with these guys? Was he part of a support network? They found evidence uh, that suggests that there could have been meetings and travel that he was involved in preparing for the hijackers' arrival. And they found a, a document or a piece of paper in, in, in possessions that had been confiscated from him in 2001 from his property. And he was living in England at the time, just after the attacks, that showed a diagram uh, that, uh, that with for a flight uh, formula, not unlike the descent that uh, Flight 77 made when it hit the Pentagon, which those two hijackers that he had known had been on. So again, without going too far, without overstating the evidence, there was a feeling that if that had been found earlier, perhaps uh, he would have been pursued more aggressively. But that is one of the lingering mysteries about this case. And wow. just and, and and you know we got about 15 seconds, Sebastian. But just. Uh, give our audience the coda to this. Uh, where is this investigation now? It apparently ended in 2016, right? Well, it was officially it was transferred to a different unit, but I think uh, between retirements, uh, transfers, uh, there was a, clearly a concerted effort. We're told uh, to 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 sort of scale this case down, and uh, senior officials at the FBI and prosecutors felt it just wasn't there that this had gone on far enough, and so the case was moved. It remains open technically, but our our impression, and no one has contradicted it, is that it is not active. So as far as an investigation right now, we don't have the sense that there is any movement. I think the main arena for new revelations about this, whether they show once and for all that there wasn't much there or they show that there could be something to pursue, will be in the civil case. The documentation from Operation Encore, which is, as I've seen it, over 5,000 pages, although Operation Encore has declassified as has 12,000. I'm currently reading a 5,000-page declassification cache. And reading just the first 1,600 pages, I found remarkable anomalies and names that were not privy to the public in the initial FBI investigation into 9-11, which was PENTBOM. And in today's episode, I'm going to be reading a number of files that I have already spoken about on my YouTube channel. But in this context, I have put it in chronological order regarding certain names, 
such as Omar al-Bayumi, Osama Basnan, Fahad al-Thumeri, Muwissed al-Jara, and Modar Abdullah, as well as Anwar al-Awlaki, Sam Mustafa, and others as well, in which it shows that the 9-11 attacks, well, the at least two 9-11 hijackers have received logistical and financial support from a much larger network of sympathizers and even Saudi officials. One such name who is involved with the Saudi Ministry of Islamic Affairs, an office located in Washington, D.C., whose name was redacted in the Encore file, save a page which showed his name, Muwissed al-Jara. Some of the documentation will show that not only did these two operatives, Khalid al-Midar and Awap al-Hazmi, receive financial support inside the United States, but that the logistical support came from Saudi consular officials as well as suspected Saudi officers for their intelligence agencies. Now, a lot of these pages are redacted, and I'm going to read to the best I can. One such document, it shows that there was a FBI confidential human source known as, as CHS, who is involved with the King Fahd Mosque located in Culver City, Los Angeles, who is intimately known to its imam, Fahad al-Thumeri, as well as a mosque member, Omar al-Bayoumi. The document goes like this. In response to their request, Fahad al-Thumeri was sent to be the lead imam at the King Fahd Mosque. Although the request for an imam appears to have been channeled through the Saudi Arabian government, it is unclear at this point the exact succession of events. To facilitate Fahad al-Thumeri's entry into the United States, al-Thumeri was designated an Islamic Affairs attache in the consulate of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Los Angeles, California, by the Ministry of Islamic Affairs Office at the Embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. That person would be Muwissed al-Jara. By the latter half of 1999, CHS advised that the King Fahd Mosque and its members had started to become more radical. Fahad al-Tamari had brought in another imam, Muhammad al-Muhana, 
who, according to CHS, was extremely radical in his religious views. Around the same time, the end of 1999, the King Fahd Mosque received a phone call from an individual in Malaysia. According to Blank, the caller wanted to speak with Fahad Al-Tamari. There is a long redaction. And then this phone call was regarding the imminent arrival of two brothers who needed their assistance. Those two brothers were, according to CHS, Nawafa Hazmi and Khalid Al-Midar. Now, let me fill in some blanks. In December of 1999, the NSA, who were listening to the phone calls out of an Al-Qaeda communications hub, a house located in Yemen, in the capital of Sana'a, which was owned by an individual by the name of Ahmed al-Hada. He was an associate of Osama bin Laden during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. It is alleged al-Hada had fought alongside bin Laden at certain points within the war. Ahmed al-Hada lived with his daughter, Hoda al-Hada, who was married to Khalid al-Midar. The NSA had begun wiretapping the calls from this house due to the fact that they had another wiretap of a satellite phone belonging to Osama bin Laden. And according to various sources, the NSA had been listening to bin Laden's satellite phone from 1992 to 1998 when he ended having a satellite phone in which the number for the Yemen hub kept calling, in which bin Laden had kept calling it as in return. And this operation involving the NSA wiretapping of the Yemen hub started in 1996 and ended in 2002. In December of 1999, the NSA heard a phone call between a person in Malaysia by the name of Khalad. This person would be later be known as Walid bin Atash. Khalad had been speaking with, an, with a person named Khalid, meaning Khalid al-Midar. Khalad had told Khalid about a meeting in Malaysia that was to take place with many leaders of Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda affiliates located in Indonesia and Philippines, members of the Jema Islamiyah in Indonesia and Al-Qaeda, as well as Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, attended this meeting, names such as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin al-Shib, Fahad al-Kuso, Khalid al-Midar, Nawab al-Hazmi, his brother Salim al-Hazmi, Ridwin Isamuddin, who goes by the nom de guerre Hambali, and allegedly Zacharias Musawi. It is alleged that the CIA and NSA had taken pictures of those attending this meeting. 
It is also alleged that at this meeting, the USS Cole and the plane's operation were discussed here. And this is why this is such a key document in the Operation Encore file, which shows, according to this FBI informant, that the arrival of two Al-Qaeda operatives were coming to the United States, which was known to the NSA and the CIA. This confidential human source also said that the CHS advised that Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar were picked up from the airport, Los Angeles International, by an individual that CHS called the blank. Although according to CHS, this individual was blank, but merely an individual who, when tasked by Fahad al-Tamari, would often provide transportation or perform other small tasks for individuals visiting the King Fahd Mosque. Now, even though that this is redacted, we do know the person who picked up both Khalid al-Midar and Nawab Hazmi from LAX. And he is known as Khalid Benamarine. Khalid Benamarine was a Tunisian who attended the King Fahd Mosque, who ran into Fahd al-Tamari. And Fahd al-Tamari began to ask Benamarine to conduct small menial tasks from members of the mosque in which when the FBI had interviewed Khalid Benamrine in the days after the 9-11 attacks, Khalid Benamrine stated that Fahad al-Tamari had told him about the arrival of two Saudis who were here inside the United States temporarily. who were going to see their sick father. He didn't tell them their names. But when the FBI showed him 30 photographs, Khalid Benamrine took out two of the photographs and put them to the side. The two photographs that he was shown, the FBI had interviewed Khalid Benamrine three times, in which, surprisingly, the FBI under Director Robert Mueller ended the case from going any further and deported Khalid Benamrine back to Tunisia, for which he had stayed in the United States with an expired student visa. The document also states that prior to the arrival of Nawab al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar, Fahad al-Tamari provided blank their flight information. Blank picked up al-Hazmi and al-Midar from the airport and brought them to the King Fahd Mosque where they first met Fahad al-Tamari. Now, this is very key because according to the 9-11 Commission, it was not known 
where the where Khalid al-Midor and the Wafa Hasmi had stood for the first three weeks. But with the Operation Encore files, we do know. Was this not available to the 9-11 Commission? Hasmi and Midar spent a few days in Bangkok and then headed for Los Angeles, where they would become the first 9-11 operatives to enter the United States on January 15, 2000. I'd now like to turn to Dieter Snell, who, by the way, was one of the federal prosecutors who prosecuted Ramzi Youssef in the Southern District of New York. Dieter? While the Hamburg operatives were just joining the 9-11 plot, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khaled al-Midar were already living in the United States, having arrived in Los Angeles on January 15, 2000. It has not been established where they stayed during the first two weeks after their arrival. They appear to have frequented the King Fahd Mosque in Culver City, possibly staying in an apartment nearby. Much remains unknown about their activities and associates while in Los Angeles, and our investigation of this period of the conspiracy is continuing. According to the confidential human source, they went to the King Fahd Mosque, where Fahad al-Tamari had given them lodging by staying in a hotel in Culver City. But let's continue. From the redacted file of Operation Encore. During Al-Hazmi and Al-Mido's time in Los Angeles, Blank was asked by Fahad Al-Tamari, used a Mediterranean restaurant and a nearby Starbucks coffee as meeting places. Blank showed Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar the location of the Mediterranean restaurant. CHS did not have a clear understanding of Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar's progression from Los Angeles to San Diego, nor the reason behind such a move. Now, why is this big? Because in later documents in which I'll read, and according to the Pentbaum investigation, Omar Al-Bayoumi, who is an associate of Fahad Al-Tamari, and who was suspected of working for the Saudi government while inside the United States, in which one of the Operation Encore files names the insta the the employer of Omar al-Bayoumi in Saudi Arabia as a government institution. Omar al-Bayoumi would later give an interview with the FBI and the 9-11 Commission in which he stated that he was in the restaurant with an associate, Kaysan bin Don, another King Fahd Mosque attendee, and that Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf Hazmi entered the restaurant. The question is, Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf Hazmi don't speak English. They don't know their way around the United States. They have never been here. So how is it that they found this restaurant? Well, with the latest Encore files, we now know that he, they were directed to the restaurant by this person, whose name is redacted in the report. And that Khalid al-Midar and Awafa Hazmi were the first ones in the restaurant. 
And then and then walked in Omar Albumi and Kaysan bin Don. And that information came from Kaysan bin Don himself. So why did Omar Albayumi lie about meeting Khalid al Midar and Wazbi while they walked in? It was the other way around. Let's go back to the file. CHS positively identified the individual in a photo as someone who has been to the Los Angeles King Fahd Mosque. The photograph is of Khalid Benatash, also known as Khalad. CHS stated that this individual in the photograph had a limp or a bad leg. Benatash had a prosthetic leg. And that he had been in this mosque in 1999. And this had to have been before the bombing of the Yosef's Coal, in which he is suspected of being a co-mastermind. CHS positively identified the individual in another photograph as Omar Al-Bayoumi. CHS stated that Al-Bayoumi was at the King Fab Mosque every Friday for prayers, adding that Al-Bayoumi and Al-Thumeri were acquaintances. CHS advised that Al-Thumeri asked Al-Bayoumi to personally take care of Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar. Al-Bayoumi was with al-Hazmi and al-Midar on multiple occasions while they were living in Los Angeles and San Diego. CHS positively identified the individual in another fourth photograph as Anwar al-Awlaki. CHS advised that Al-Thumeri also asked Al-Awlaki to assist Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar while they were in San Diego. In another file, which shows that Anwar al-Awlaki and Omar al-Biyumi had contact between each other on the phone with the arrival of Khalid al-Bidar and Wafa Hazmi. The file starts like this. Al-Bayomi invited the two to move to San Diego, California. Al-Midar and al-Hazmi moved to San Diego in early February of 2000. At this time, Al-Bayomi's telephonic contact with Muasset al-Jara increased once the hijackers moved from Los Angeles to San Diego, Al-Thumeri's telephonic contact with Al-Jara was diminished. Al-Bayoumi assisted the hijackers in renting an apartment in San Diego, co-signing a lease agreement with them. He also assisted them in opening a bank account. Of note, approximately one hour before taking the hijackers to the bank, Anwar al-Awlaki called that specific bank location and had a two-minute conversation with an unknown individual. Approximately one hour after setting up the accounts and leaving the bank, Al-Bayoumi placed a call to Anwar al-Awlaki. While in San Diego, Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi attended the Al-Ribat Mosque, where Anwar al-Awlaki was the imam. 
in a file stated entitled Omar Albayumi meets Khalid al-Bidar and Nawaf Azmi at Mediterranean restaurant. On January 15, 2000, Khalid al-Midar and Nawafa Hazmi arrived in Los Angeles, California via LAX airport on a flight from Bangkok originating from Malaysia. The first place they visited was the King Fahd Mosque where Fahd al-Tamari was the imam. Al-Tamari tasked an associate, Omar al-Bayoumi, to, to look after Khalid al-Midar and Nawafa Hazmi during their time in Los Angeles to include transportation, lodging, etc. In subsequent interviews with the FBI, the associates stated that the hijackers asked him specifically where the Mediterranean restaurant was. Approximately one week later, Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Hazmi went to the Mediterranean restaurant where they met with Omar Al-Bayoumi and Kaysan bin Don. And like I said, it's pretty interesting to note that Omar al-Bayoumi had lied about them walking into the restaurant and meeting al-Midar and al-Hazmi when it was the other way around. Now, as for the, the restaurant, what is also interesting is the case of who that associate was that took him to the restaurant. And according to a source inside the mosque, that person also gave them lodging in his house for a week, which would explain why the 9-11 Commission did not know where Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi had stood for the first three weeks. But now we know, through these revelations in these documents, that Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi stood with members of the King Fahd Mosque and hotel rooms that were provided by Fahad al-Fumari. Now, in a file stated, entitled, I'm sorry, Omar al-Biumi, Saudi government employee, because you're probably asking, who does Omar al-Biumi work for? And according to the synopsis, to request Lagat to obtain further information regarding the father of Saud al-Rashid and to confirm the employment of Hamid al-Rashid at the Saudi Arabian Presidency of Civil Aviation. Investigation has determined that Omar al-Bayoumi assisted Khalid al-Midar and Wapa Hazmi after their arrival in San Diego in February of 2000. Further investigation into Omar al-Bayoumi determined that al-Bayoumi has been employed by the Saudi Arabian Presidency of Civil Aviation since 1975. Now, this is a huge revelation because this was not known to the public 
ever before. And very few media outlets cared to report this. Omar Albiomi also said in his interview with the FBI and the 9-11 Commission that he was not employed with any government agency whatsoever, nor did he provide any financial assistance to Khalid al-Bidar and Hazmi, knowing that they would be involved in the planes operation. According to him, he provided menial help to Al-Midar and Hazmi because he felt sorry for them. And he also provides assistance to visiting Saudis into the country. But yet, in files that I'll be reading in a bit, Omar Al-Biyumi had never given, had never gave any type of assistance to visiting Saudis inside the country ever before or after his financial and logistical support to Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi in January of 2000. An individual interviewed by the FBI advised that the Saudi Arabian Presidency of Civil Aviation, in short, PCA, employee Hamid al-Rashid was involved in the payment of salary to Omar al-Bayoumi. Furthermore, this individual identified Hamid al-Rashid as the father of Saud Abdulaziz Saud al-Rashid. At the time of this identification, the photograph of Saud al-Rashid was being broadcast in the news media as a result of the issuance of an international beyond the lookout or bolo. The bolo had been issued for Saud al-Rashid after an image of his passport had been found on a CD-ROM along with images of the passports of 9-11 hijackers Khalid al-Midar, Nawab al-Hazmi, his brother Salim al-Hazmi, and Abdulaziz al-Amari. Media reports regarding Saud al-Rashid have identified his father to be Abdulaziz Saud al-Rashid, an employee of Saudi Red Crescent in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. This information clearly differs than the information previously obtained by the FBI. In order to clarify that the father of Saud al-Rashid is not the same individual who is associated with Omar al-Biyumi, it is requested that Legat Blank confirm the identity of the father of Saud al-Rashid and determine if he was ever employed at PCA. Additionally, it is requested that Lagat Blank did confirm the employment of Hamid al-Rashid at PCA. So, we can now connect Omar al-Bayoumi to a government agency who is getting payment from a government agency in which we could assert and speculate that some of that payment was also offered to Khalid al-Midar to Wafa Hazmi because Omar al-Biyumi had paid for their apartment's rent in San Diego.
Now, if Mua said al Jara, the foreign Islamic affairs adjuncted, had been the primary coordinator in getting Fahad al-Tamiri his position at the King Fab Mosque, and who is known to Omar al-Bayoumi and Osama Basnan and Anwar al-Awlaki, Mu'a said al-Jara needed to have direct contacts in Los Angeles and San Diego. And in a file entitled Adel al-Saban and Mu'atib al-Suderi facilitate the arrival of Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi in Los Angeles. The file goes like this. FBI investigation conducted through Operation Encore uncovered two additional individuals, Adel al-Sadhan and Mutwib al-Suderi, with a past connection to the subjects of Operation Encore, along with telephone and financial analysis, indicates al-Sadhan and al-Suderi may have assisted in laying the groundwork for the arrival of al-Hazmin al-Midar in Southern California and served as an advanced team to vet those who would later assist both hijackers. Al-Sadhan and al-Suderi previously came to the United States in June 1999 as employees of the Islamic Affairs Office at the Embassy of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. and had direct contact with Operation Encore subjects Fahad al-Tamari and Omar al-Bayoumi, who assisted Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar with living, financial, and travel arrangements while they were in Southern California in the year 2000. Although al-Sadhan and al-Suderi never had direct contact with al-Midar and al-Hazmi, al-Sadhan likely met with Fahad al-Tamari in person in 1998, approximately one year before the hijackers arrived in the U.S., and both al-Sadhan and al-Suderi met with al-Bayoumi in 1999, who assisted them during their six-week stay in San Diego, approximately six months before the arrival of al-Hazmi and al-Midar. This contact, paired with analysis of call records and travel patterns, during the time the two hijackers were in Southern California indicates that al-Sadhan and al-Suderi may have served as an advanced team led by Muasid al-Jara, who helped to arrange people to assist Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar during their time in Southern California. The FBI has no information to suggest that either al-Sadhan or al-Suderi are operators of al-Qaeda, or that they present a direct threat of violent terrorist activity. However, if al-Sadhan and al-Sadari are currently involved with facilitation efforts on behalf of al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda affiliates, the FBI has assessed that allowing them to travel to, and the rest is redacted. Now, that's another huge revelation because these names were never made before public until just recently. And that these two acted as coordinators under 
Muasad al-Jara to facilitate the arrival of two known al-Qaeda operatives inside the United States. The question is, did the NSA or the CIA know about this Saudi operation? Were they working in tandem with them? Or were the Saudis conducting their own separate operation? Were the Israelis using their moving front companies and the art student ring, were they in conjunction and coordinating their efforts with Saudis inside the United States in facilitating the arrival and giving logistic and financial support to the 9-11 hijackers? Or were the Israelis running their own separate operation outside of the CIA, the NSA, and the Saudis? This very well could be the case. We really don't know. Another file entitled Omar al-Biyumi becomes Khalid al-Midar and Awapa Hazmi's co-signer on apartment. The file reads like this. According to an interview of blank dated August 16, 2002, initially, Nawapa Hazmi and Khalid al-Bidar came into the rental office of the Parkwood apartment complex in San Diego with an unknown Middle Eastern male looking for a two-bedroom apartment sometime during the end of January 2000 or beginning of February 2000. Because al-Hazmi and al-Midar did not speak English well, they needed someone to interpret for them. And who interpreted for them? The name is redacted. So we don't know. That Omar Abayumi had become a co-signer of the apartment that was paid for by Omar Abayumi. The question is whether that payment was coming from directly from the Saudi Arabian Air Presidency. I'll continue. Since Al-Hazmin Al-Midar did not have enough cash, nor did they have a cashier's check, money order, or certified check, Al-Bayoumi left and returned with a cashier's check in his name and made payable to the Parkwood Apartments the amount of $1,558. Effectively acting as a rental agreement and co-signer and guarantor. According to an interview with Blank dated September 18, 2001, Blank remembers renting an apartment to two Middle Eastern men from January to March of 2000. Blank reported that there was another male individual who acted as a translator on approximately four occasions for Khalid al-Bidar and al-Hazmi. This person was described as a light-complected Middle Eastern male, approximately five foot six, 160 pounds, wore glasses, and a Jewish yarmulke. 
That's pretty interesting. But who is Muisad al-Jara? What do we really know about him? Well, according to the Operation Encore file, it's entitled Muisad al-Jara Selecting Sunni Extremists Inside. The file reads, Al-Jara may be trying to bring other Saudi Sunni Salafi extremists into the United States through his position at the EKSA which is the Foreign Ministry of Affairs in Washington, D.C. Al Jara's official responsibilities are to manage and control all assignments of Saudi imams, clerics, into the United States and facilitate the issuance of diplomatic visas to these individuals. Saudi imams who are assigned to the United States through this process report to Al Jara as he serves as the coordinator of their activity while they are inside the United States. Al-Jara is purposely selecting Saudi Salafi extremists to be assigned to the United States. And there's a long blank. Al-Jara travels in and around the United States, visiting the Saudi imams under his control. It should be noted that Al-Jara is listed as an accountant for the EKSA on the U.S. Department of State's diplomats list. It also reads that Mousa al-Jara was doing this under the auspices or the ignorance of the State Department. Just like the State Department had no idea that the CIA and NSA had known that Khalid al-Midar and Nawab al-Hazmi were inside the United States. And they withheld this information for 16 months. Why did they do that? Did they purposely do this to protect Khalid al-Midar and Nawab al-Hazmi? Well, according to the CIA and their own counterterrorism center, the information that the FBI wanted from the CIA was intentionally withheld from them. And as I mentioned in previous number of videos, the Joint House Inquiry had investigated this matter regarding the CIA intentionally withholding information from the FBI about Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. ...of Ms. Hill's report. It stated the following. On June 11, 2001, FBI headquarters representatives and CIA representatives met with the New York FBI agents handling the Cole investigation. The New York agents were shown but not given copies of the photographs that they and, and told that they were taken in Malaysia. They weren't told that. Still, information being withheld. This is after the call, information withheld from the FBI. One of the New York agents recalled that Almidar's name was being mentioned. He also recalled asking for more information on why the people in the photographs were being followed. 
So we got an FBI now asking the CIA, why are you following these folks? He recalled asking for more information on why they were being followed and for access to that information. The New York agents were advised they could not be told why Al Midhar and the others were being followed. I, th this is truly unbelievable. I, I've got to tell you, you all, th this is extraordinary. This has got nothing to do with information which can't cross a wall. This has to do with leads which are not shared with the FBI. Just simple leads. As well as the Saudis who are withholding information about two Al-Qaeda operatives living inside Southern California. So we could show a wider network of intelligence that was happening in the year 2000 that was not known to the State Department or the FBI while all of this was going on. In a file entitled Muasad al Jara Controls Fahad al Tamari, the file reads blank Al Jara is heavily connected, linked to Saudi Sunni extremists operating inside the United States, specifically with the Southern California based network of Mohammed al Munna and Fahad al Tamari. Al Jara is, in fact, a controlling, guiding, and directing influence on all aspects of Sunni extremist activity in Southern California and has been directing, controlling, and funding Al-Muhana and Al-Thumeri since their arrival in the United States in 1998. The recent removal of, of Muhammad Al-Muna and Fahad Al-Thumeri, which was done at the behest of the Saudi Ministry of Interior and the rest of the file is redacted. It seems that Muasad Al-Jara is the lead coordinator regarding Saudi intelligence in Southern California which was not known to the public before the declassification of these files. Now, so far, these revelations are enormous, and yet it is largely ignored by the legacy media, which are basically the arm of the federal government, even though they're not controlled by the government, as well as the ignorance from the public who have no idea any of this information exists, which shows a wider Saudi intelligence network that may be in coordination with the NSA and CIA or may be acting as a separate intelligence unit regarding facilitating the arrival of Khalid al and Wahazmi two known Al-Qaeda operatives. Now, in a file in which the synopsis entitles Document Relevant Information Obtained 
during a consensually recorded personal conversation between a San Diego cooperative witness, CW, and target subject, Osama Yusuf Basnan, on 2001 in San Diego, California. The details of this file are on blank 2001, a source who is in a position to testify met with Osama Basnan, who is an associate of Omar Bayoumi, in San Diego, California, and engaged in a consensually recorded conversation. The meeting took place predominantly in blank. The meeting was consensually monitored and surveilled by the FBI. And the meeting goes like this. Source and Basnan greet each other and exchange pleasantries. There's a long redaction of what Bas Basnan is saying. But it says, note, after the meeting, the source commented that Osama Basnan, throughout the conversation, appeared on several occasions to begin to discuss events surrounding the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks in a way that seemed to indicate that Osama Basnan had some prior information or knowledge regarding the terrorist attacks. However, source further commented that each time it seemed Basnan was beginning to discuss information indicative of Basnan having prior knowledge of the events of September 11, 2001, Basnan would catch himself, change the topic, or attempt to diminish or contradict what he had begun to say. Basnan's statement, blank, in the above quote, may be one such example. And the recording is actually redacted. The transcript of the recording is redacted, but the notes are not. There's another note after the recording is played. This is one of the more pertinent comments by Osama Basnan. Here, Basnan seems to indicate that he has knowledge of terrorist training in general, and more specifically, knowledge of the demeanor of the hijackers when they were training in preparation for the terrorist events of September 11, 2001. Then they played a recording, which is redacted, and there was a note. This is one of the most pertinent statements by Osama Basnan. Basnan admits that he used to live in the same apartment complex with some of the hijackers. Basnan, in two separate statements, emphatically asserts that he used to see them. In interview, Blank prepared the transcript about the meaning of the word see in the context which it was used, determined that Basnan at least admitted he knew who they were, saw them around the complex, but did not necessarily associate with or engage in conversation with the hijackers. However, the use of the word see in the context did not preclude Bastan having a more close association with hijackers and possibly talking directly with the hijackers. At this point in the conversation, Bastan provided no further clarification on how extensive the relationship with the hijackers were. Again, there is a redaction because the transcript is redacted from the recording. Note, 
Source has positively identified the person they were referring to as Omar Albiumi, who is actually detained in Great Britain. Investigation to date has been able to confirm that hijackers Nawapa Hazmi and Khalid Al-Midar lived with Omar Albiumi, and that Osama Bastan asserts that Omar Albiumi knows the hijackers, something Albiumi has consistently denied. It is asserted by the source that Osama Basnan knows some information regarding the events surrounding the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks that the source is unaware of. It also suggests that Basnan is not inclined to openly discuss his knowledge of those events with source. In addition, in a post-debrief interview of Source, Source commented that when Osama Bastan made the statement about blank, Bastan was referring to some identified blank plan to conquer the United States or subject the United States to the will of the Muslim people. Taken together, these statements show Bastan had knowledge of the hijackers' whereabouts during a time just weeks prior to the September 11, 2001 attacks. It also shows that Osama Basnan knows who they were living with and training with. This information is not publicly known, nor has been confirmed in the investigation. And this is huge, because it shows that Osama Basnan, who is an associate of Omar al-Biyumi, and Fahad al-Dumeri, also may have known that the hijackers were planning to do an event of some sort against the United States, and that the training that was involved was known to Osama Basnan as well. Now, in another file, which is entitled Saudi government contact with Omar Abiyumi, states that blank information was provided to Special Agent Blank regarding Omar Abiyumi. Omar Abiyumi almost daily taking telephone calls from Saudi Arabia. The emir from the Ministry of Defense, who was in charge of the air traffic control, would frequently call Omar Abiyumi. Omar al-Biyumi registered in school for immigration purposes and to meet new students from the Middle East. Al-Biyumi blank was going to Los Angeles to pick up some visitors. Within a day or two after returning from Los Angeles, al-Biyumi introduced blank to Nawafa Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar. Al-Biyumi blank, he had met al-Hazmi al-Midar in a restaurant on his way back from Los Angeles. Al-Bayoumi invited the two to come to San Diego, and they accepted. Al-Bayoumi did not tell Blank if Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar were the visitors he was expecting. Subsequently, Al-Bayoumi hosted a dinner to welcome, to welcome Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar to the San Diego Muslim community, in which Al-Bayoumi videotaped this event as well. There is another file in Operation Encore in which it asserts that Omar al-Biyumi, according to members of the King Fahd Mosque, was indeed a Saudi spy. 
on blank information was provided to Special Agent Blank regarding Omar Albiumi. It is believed that Omar Albiumi made friends with Blank for the purpose of gaining control rather than friendship's sake. Albiumi was considered by most in the community, as well as the King Fahd Mosque, as some type of intelligence agent for the Saudi Arabian government reporting on the activities of Muslims in the San Diego area. The feeling that Albiumi was an agent for the Saudi government was further reinforced by the fact that he had held no regular job, but had plenty of money to prepare lavish dinners at his apartment or apartments of friends. The purpose of the dinners was usually to introduce and welcome newcomers to the local Muslim community or to bid farewell to those leaving. Al-Bayoumi would always videotape these dinners. Al-Bayoumi told Blank that he had traveled up to Los Angeles to pick up someone coming into the country, when by chance those two men were Khalid al-Midar and Nawab Bahazmi. Al-Bayoumi frequently traveled to the Los Angeles airport to drop off or pick up Saudis visiting Southern California. Blank that Al-Bayoumi was a person known to have connections with the Saudi government. Al-Bayoumi would travel to Washington, D.C. every one to two months and had a contact in the Dawa, who is related to the Civil Aviation Office of the Saudi Arabian Consulate on Wyoming Street in Washington, D.C. Through this contact, Al-Bayoumi would be able to get items such as Qurans or robes much faster than if done through regular request. Now, who is at the Saudi Arabian Consulate and who is at the Saudi Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Washington, D.C.? Muiz said Al-Jar. I'll continue reading. Al-Bayoumi traveled back to Saudi Arabia approximately one year for approximately two to three weeks, once a year for approximately two to three weeks. Al-Bayoumi's stay in the U.S. seemed to be decided on a yearly basis. Al-Bayoumi learned that he would be leaving San Diego, but did not know where he would go next. Approximately seven to eight months ago, he knew he would be moving to England. And that he would be attending school in San Diego, in which the government, uh, the Saudi Arabian Air Presidency, would pay for. The FBI noted that Al-Bayoumi is an employee of the Ministry of Finance, or works under a separate department which answers to the Ministry of Finance in Saudi Arabia. Talal Al-Hamdan, an employer at the Ministry of Finance, described the relationship between Al-Bayoumi and his father, at the Ministry of Finance. Note, Al-Bayoumi had to get Al-Hamdan's signature on various documents. Note, on one of these documents, Al-Bayoumi requested Al-Hamdan to provide a reference sponsorship for Al-Bayoumi's application to the Saudi government to travel to the United States to pursue postgraduate studies as well as a facilitation of the arrival of Khalid al-Midar and the Waqf al-Hazmi. So now we can show 
that Omar will be lying to the FBI and State Department about never meeting Khalid al-Midar and Wafahazmi in San Diego, nor providing them with material, logistical, and financial support, and that he never worked for the Saudi Arabian government in any fashion. All of this turned out to be lies. But the question is, why are they lying? Why? Why is Muwaset al-Jara lying about his involvement with Omar Abayoumi, Fahad al-Tamari, Osama Bastan, and Anwar al-Olaki? Why was he, a lead, was he allowed to leave in 2006 back to Saudi Arabia when the FBI investigation pent bomb was still underway? knowing that the Saudi government, at some level, was providing logistical and financial support to two 9-11 hijackers? These are questions that need to be answered. In the Operation Encore Overview, it states that based on the activity patterns in 1999 and 2000, al-Sadhan and al-Sudari possibly served in the capacity of an advanced intelligence team involved in laying the groundwork for 9-11 hijackers, Nawapa Hazmi and Khalid al-Midar before their arrival in Southern California in early 2000. There was no indication that al-Sadhan and al-Sudari had direct contact with the hijackers. However, similar associations, communications, and logistics mirrored those of the hijackers upon their arrival. According to the U.S. State Department Office of Foreign Medicines, Al-Sudari worked as an administrative officer from June 1999 to April 2001, and Al-Sadhan worked at the Islamic Affairs Department at the Embassy of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in Washington, D.C. Both Al-Sadhan and Al-Sudari both worked under Muasid al Jara. Operation Encore opened in October of 2007, which is an investigation to determine how two 9-11 hijackers, Khalid al-Midar and Nawab Hazmi, integrated into and were supported by the Muslim community where they lived in Southern California in the year 2000. Fahad al-Damari and Omar al-Bayoumi were key figures in assisting Khalid al-Midar and Nawab Hazmi upon their arrival, before their arrival, and after their arrival in Southern California. Analysis of Omar al-Bayoumi and Fahad al-Tamari's call activity indicates that the assistance provided to the hijackers likely involved a network of people outside of Omar al-Bayoumi and Fahad al-Tamari and Anwar al-Awlaki, and included an individual in Washington, D.C., who is Muasad al-Jara. However, it is unclear if any of the individuals involved had pre-knowledge of 9-11 or of Al-Midar and Ahazmi's role in 9-11. Now, there are notes. Note one, Al-Midar and Ahazmi did not speak English and were not familiar with Western culture, which made them reliant on these individuals for assistance while in the U.S. 
Note 2. Blank was tasked by Fahad al Demeri to pick up Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi from the airport and to take care of them while they were in Los Angeles. That person turned out to be Kwali Benamri. However, in FBI interviews with Blank, he never admitted to directly being tasked by Fahad al-Demeri, but he did admit to spending time and assisting Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi with various things while they were in Los Angeles. Note three, during an FBI interview with Blank, he admitted to being instructed by Al-Bayomi to assist the Wapahazmi and Khalid Al-Midar during their stay in San Diego. Al-Bayomi also told Blank that he, Al-Bayomi, was responsible for Nawapahazmi and Khalid Al-Midar. Note three, According to a proper interview of Modar Muhammad al-Modar Zaid, a.k.a. Modar Abdullah, he was tasked by Omar al-Bayoumi to look after Khalid al-Midar and Nawab Hazmi during their time in San Diego. It remains unclear as to why Modar or Blank were chosen by Omar al-Bayoumi. Between January 31 of 2000 and February 3rd of 2000, Al Bayomi called the Foreign Ministry of Affairs in Washington, D.C. and Muwaset Al Jara seven times. After February 3rd of 2000, Al Bayomi never calls there again. So, what I'm trying to say here is that we now have proof that there is a larger Saudi network than we were, we were previously led to believe. And that this network involved members of the Saudi government, not just in Saudi Arabia, but inside the United States as well, with Muwaset al Jara working at the Saudi Arabian Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Washington, D.C., who was the coordinator of Fahad al-Tameri, the imam at the King Fahd Mosque, Omar al-Bayoumi, who provided financial and logistical support in Los Angeles and San Diego to Khalid al-Medan al-Wapahazmi, Muatid al-Sudari, and al-Sarhan, Muatid al-Sarhan, who acted as personal attaches of Musa al-Jara, to make sure things ran smoothly in Los Angeles. And Anwar al-Awlaki, who gave logistical support to Khalid al-Midar and al-Azmi in San Diego. And that there were other members of the King Fahd Mosque who may have unwittingly provided financial, logistical, and travel information to Khalid al-Midar and the Wafa Hazmi. All of this information was not known to the public before the release of these Encore files. And while this was happening, the FBI and the Department of State had no idea that any of this was going on. 
and that the NSA and the CIA continued to withhold information from the FBI about Khalid al-Midar Nawaf Hazmi inside the United States. And that when the FBI read the information from the CIA about the arrival of the Wapazmi and Khalid al-Midar to the United States, the CIA refrain, restricted the FBI to share that information with the FBI, which in essence, if that information was shared, that the FBI began monitoring Khalid al-Midar and Wapazmi may have prevented part of 9-11, or if they arrested him, may have prevented 9-11 from even happening. Now, at the same time, the Saudis and the people that I just named, had they shared this information and that they were true allies of the United States, could have also prevented 9-11 from happening. And so the question is, why was this information covered up by the FBI after 9-11? Why did the FBI tell Phoenix agent Ken Williams not to help with the 9-11 victims' families in their civil suit with Saudi Arabia? Why did the CIA tell FBI agents Mark Rossini and Doug Miller not to share that information about two 9-11 hijackers inside the United States with the FBI? And why did the CIA and the NSA not share pertinent information with the FBI or Department of State, which could have prevented 9-11 from even happening? And if we don't start asking the right questions, if we start entertaining the infantile and fantastical theories attached to 9-11 attacks for the last 20 years, everything that I just told you will just be forgotten in time. We have some names to go along with the operations that were protecting, seemingly protecting, the 9-11 hijackers while they were inside the United States. This is the real damning information. This is the stuff that should be reported by the legacy media, and it is not. This is the stuff that the 9-11 truth movement should be talking about, and it is not. Do we blame ignorance and malfeasance, or is this a manufactured cover-up, an absolution, of those involved with pre-9-11 intelligence in assisting these 9-11 hijackers to be all but forgotten about in the public eye. But as more revelations will come up, as sure as I'm going to be reading with the next 4,300 pages, I'll probably be doing more episodes just like this to keep you my dedicated listeners, and to newbies who may be listening for the first time, I'll keep you informed because you deserve to know what is happening with the pre-9-11 intelligence operation rings regarding the Saudis, the Israelis, 
the NSA and the CIA, which was later covered up by the FBI afterwards. And so that's the end of this episode of The Dark and Dower. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald, and we'll see you in the next episode.